There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. The Big Question. So with us in the studio today, we have Fiona Duvivier, freelance content writer and avid reader. Now, our big question today, if you could live stream your emotions on social media, would you? We are asking that because we're looking at a work of speculative fiction by Tom Pollock today. It is called Heartstream. Um, it's a psychological thriller. It's aimed at a young adult audience and it's got two main characters, Kat and Amy. And I'm going to leave it there and I'm going to hand over to you now, Fiona. Um, because I know that you've read this and you're reviewing it. And Amy's story starts quite stressfully, I think. Jonathan, do you want to actually tell us a little bit about the book, first of all? Yeah, sure, happy. It's it's set in either a near future or an alternative present, uh, and it follows the, the sort of convergent fortunes of two young women, one who has achieved social media greatness by streaming her emotions, as you say, and the other is dating a pop star. Fiona, does that sound about right? Yeah, I think, although perhaps potentially issue of social media greatness, perhaps. Greatness? Well, only because, obviously, it's it's a new concept that at the moment doesn't exist, although some people's Facebook statuses seem like they're <laughs> almost there. There's so much detail. Um, but you can essentially um, plug into this app. You have sensors on your head and then you supposedly can feel everything that this person's feeling. Um, so and she has lots. She starts doing it um, after her mother is diagnosed with. I think cancer. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and so obviously the her feelings are very raw. It's very painful. She's dealing with one how, how you react in that circumstance. So she very quickly builds up a base of followers that are huge. And obviously she has a very big following. And I think there's an underlying, obviously with a lot of the sort of speculative future novels that deal with technology, there's a discussion of whether it is a positive thing or it's going to you know destroy us or enhance Mm. us in the future and whether it's ethical exactly and i think a lot of that stems from uh, us as a society already utilizing social media in positive very positive and very very negative ways and so i think when you're examining the fact that she's walking around at some points with you know hundreds of thousands millions of people sort of plugged into how she's feeling whether that is an objective to be achieved or whether that is an alarming representation of the fact that people don't have enough going on in their lives. In, in, in some way, we, we, we are almost there at the moment. I mean, we can't uh, stream our emotions and we can't plug in directly to people's emotions, but people mm. do stream their emotions in the sense that they explain what they're feeling and yeah. people uh, tap into that and in some senses feel that. Uh, feel that too. I mean, when I was reading, I thought, oh, yeah, this is a futuristic thing and and we're not there yet. But in some ways, we already do this. Well, Facebook already has that thing where you can say they are like on when you update your status, it says, you know, what's your mood today? Mm. Um, yes, that's when it comes up as feeling blessed, feeling happy, feeling. Yeah, it's, I think they might have broadened the options. But yeah, I mean, and also <laughs> you, been on, know, for a while. on your news feed, you know, people, whatever platform you're using, people often will 
whether it's written or, or visuals, you know, I'm feeling, or, you know, on Instagram, they might, instead of a nice picture on the beach, they're feeling sad, they'll put up some sort of inspirational quote or some cryptic message. Um, whatever the, that the, I, I think the irony with that is, is, is that when I see something like that now, it tends to inspire the opposite emotion. So um, if someone says that they're feeling, feeling happy or feeling blessed, it tends to make me feel angry. Um, whereas um, you... But you derive pleasure when you see that people are sad. Exactly. <laughs> I'm wondering how many of your friends are listening to the show today, because this could be quite, quite a reveal. But it them. is quite surprising because obviously, if you potentially, if you, unless not Jonathan, but if you, <laughs> if you see that one of your friends is sad, you might reach out to them and say, "Are you okay? What's going on? Are you all right?" I'm not sure. I would want to. I don't think I would ever really understand the inclination of wanting to feel that feeling mm. because especially if you're not feeling it i can understand perhaps if you're if you're feeling something negative that you can't you're worried that you're alone or you can't relate to then you know knowing that there's other people experiencing the same thing or going through the same thing but actively sort of walking around i'm having a good day but oh i'm going to plug into someone who's feeling really sad you know that 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 i find quite strange why are we cynical about these things though i mean because i don't think i'm on my own here at feeling a little bit of sensing a little bit of annoyance when people um, stream their emotions in the way they do at the moment i mean when when someone says that they are feeling sad it isn't my instinct to um to give them a call and ask them how they're doing um <laughs> does it depend on who it is though um, Although the people that you would offer that to usually aren't the people that would do that. It, I don't think it depends on who it does, on, on, on who it is. I, I just think that if somebody um, were to reach out in that way, I, I think that they're not putting in, this is my own uh, mm, interpretation, mm. they're not putting in enough effort for me to make the effort to get in touch with them. Mm. I, I agree. And I mean, I, I've seen, sort of see, seen people post things and it, they're sort of self-indulgent and it gets a bit, you're kind of like, you're just sort of screaming into the void. Um, but actually, we were having a conversation the other day about the fact that, because I was mentioning that I found it very difficult when people put certain things on Facebook that I consider to be very personal or any social media. And I don't understand why people would do that. And it felt like me, it was attention seeking or they were showing off or mm. whatever it might be. And actually, I kind of had my mind changed a little bit about this because I was understanding that society has evolved in very different ways. So Facebook, for some people now, is kind of like a diary would have been, you know, kind of 20 years ago. Or an address book, for example. Exactly. Well, yes, certainly that. I definitely would use that just so I'm in touch with people. But, you know, the We've always had outlets for you to be able to vent your feelings, you know, whether that's to someone in a diary, uh, writing a song, painting, a whatever it might be. And actually, Facebook is a, just another outlet that's emerged that also happens to reflect where we are as a society in terms of the technology that's available. So I think that the way people interact with it can't always be judged quite as harshly as we as I naturally my natural instinct is much the same as yours you know I use social media to keep in touch with people who are far away you know kind of vaguely know what's going on whereas I see people utilize social media in ways that worry me and upset me but I think we also need to understand that people are utilizing it in ways that we would have used other methods in the past and it's not 
perhaps as shocking as as it as we feel it is. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the marketing for this book. Right. We'll talk a little bit more in depth about the actual story when we come back. But fans of Black Mirror will like this. Mm-hmm. Is is what's kind of all over the internet and all over the book as mm-hmm. well. Is that a reach, or do you think that it's true? I think it's a it's a it's a bit of a reach in only in the way that yes, it's a very similar kind of concept. It's very much a sort of warning of you know what can go wrong Mm. in certain situations and obviously Black Mirror is certainly that I mean Charlie Brooke has gone really far to be like we really should watch out Um, but there's definitely a far more adult theme to Black Mirror than is in this book so I'm not sure that they've quite understood that I really wanted to like this because I love Black Mirror and I think it's really great and when when you, you, you talked about it and I was like oh that sounds right up my street I think, and I really wanted to like this a lot. Um, and I think the story is good. There's, you know, some some great elements to it. But I think it's sort of giving, imparting a lesson that I'm not the right audience for because I already don't think we should utilise social media as much as we do. Mm. Whereas, so you think this is more very much targeted at young it, adults? It, which who, is exactly who it should be targeted right, at yeah. because they're the ones that are currently, the majority of them, who are, you know, utilise or think social media is the be-all and end-all. And I think this is kind of pointing out that, you know, it can it can distract you from the, what's most important in life um, and it can cause issues for you. So I think in that way it's great, but I can't imagine that there's a huge young adult audience for Black Mirror. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong in saying that. I, the only the only episode that I would disagree with and where I thought that it maybe wasn't reaching, I mm-hmm. think tonally the book is most similar to the Miley Cyrus episode yep. in the latest season. Because yep. yep. um, I think that that had a broader mm. audience and also because Miley Cyrus is in it I imagine there are quite a few young people who've mm-hmm. actually watched it um so tonally I think Heartstream is kind of along the yeah. same lines Jonathan have you what did you think of that whole connection in terms of the marketing do you, do you think they're just being really clever about it I don't know I think that it's a bit of a stretch mm. uh, yeah, I agree. mean I I don't know if the audiences are I mean ultimately they're trying to appeal to the audiences and I would say Unless they are piggybacking off that last uh, Miley Cyrus uh, episode of Black Mirror, then no, I think it's a bit too much of a stretch. I mean, I, I also, uh, I'm afraid to say, I also wanted to like this novel, um, but uh, didn't. I, I don't think it's in the same league uh, as uh, as Black Mirror. No, no, it's not. Yeah, it's very. But I mean, it doesn't need to be. No, and obviously we're going to talk more about this later on, but it is especially when you're dealing with things that are futuristic, especially technology focused, it's obviously a lot easier to translate that on screen than it often is in on paper. Mm. Um, and there were certain elements where there were explanations that appeared later on I felt kind of should have come earlier and mm. could have been told in a different way. And I thought they missed... It just, for me, I just kept... Ironically, obviously, it's like we just wanted to connect and is the kind of the tagline and just... They just didn't. There was just something missing. I think that's absolutely right, particularly with the technology. There are a lot of things that were explained very late in the book and mm. were only there to enable the plot to make sense. Kind of, you kind of felt like, um, if, oh, God, this is about to happen. But if I don't tell them this, they won't get it. Mm. Oh, I better quickly just sort of add that in. And that for me, you know, there was not enough setting of the scene. Mm. Um, and I also felt I'm not too sure how well things can you know and there wasn't a lot of character development um it was hard to kind of feel 
for them. They, they, I think I think it's possible he was trying to accomplish too much. Mm. I think it's very clear, or it was clear to me, that this is a, a book which started with a plot and, and actually a reasonably well thought through and, and mapped out plot and, and, and you could trace the two threads and you could see them coming together. Mm. And even though I, I didn't... I didn't like the book at the end. I did want to finish it because it, the plot mm. was good. And did you see the twist coming? I don't think it's written so you can see it coming. I mean, it's it's written so it's clear that there will be a twist because mm. otherwise you have these two um, you have these two mm. convergent threads which otherwise are going to be meaningless. So it's clear that there's something coming, um, and you could guess at it, but I don't think it's written in such a way that you can guess it. I thought I sort of sort of guessed it and then I changed my mind about it and then when it turned out actually it was right I was then ashamed I hadn't got it earlier well I don't it's like an Agatha Christie isn't it you don't yeah. you're not you aren't actually given the tools to be able to solve it earlier on true yeah 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 so it was just published two days ago actually this oh. book um, it speculates what would happen if we had an app called Heartstream in the novel that allowed us to live stream our feelings mm. and you've got two main characters Kat and Amy that are involved in should we say difficult scenarios that are brought about by social media so on the day of her mother's funeral Amy finds a strange woman in her house who has rigged it with explosives so you know not your average day mm -hmm. but we were briefly talking off air that as scary as the whole social media and streaming your emotions question is there is a part of a big part of the book that is quite current mm -hmm. um, and isn't kind of predicting the future it's very much happening today that is a little bit scarier yes Yes. So Kat's um, side of the story is uh, starts off with her as a fan of a band in the sort of One Direction-esque sort of Jonas mm -hmm. Brothers sort of, I'm hoping those cultural references are on point <laughs> there. <Yep. laughs> um, but uh, sort of the big fan of this band, but she's also part of their online fan club. Um, and the obsessive nature of the people involved I found incredibly alarming and even more so than the streaming of the emotion side of things did you find um, it credible yes I think I mean I there, there are, I think I don't I would like to not find it credible like I mm. really hope that this is not as bad like it doesn't get this bad but there's a huge part of me that worries that yes it actually does I mean I've definitely seen I'm not really into kind of I'm not up to date perhaps is a better way to say necessarily with all the goings on and things but I've definitely heard stories of people who have you know been in relationships with people who were in big bands mm. just being you know destroyed and you know their lives picked apart by fans who don't think they're worthy or think they're the wrong choice or have invented because this is the thing with celebrity and fandom is that and what can make it so toxic is that people invent uh, connections with people that obviously they've never met these people in real life they don't or even if they have it they might have got a handshake or something but they invent things about them that they want to be true to make this person be all that they are to them. And therefore, when something comes along that messes with that narrative they've created, it often produces very scary reactions in people. Is this a new thing? I mean, if you look back uh, on the fame of the Beatles, for example, yeah. uh, and look at the footage of some of their, um, their, their sort of uh, oh, yeah. 1960s concerts, there are people mm. screaming and fainting yep. and, and throwing themselves at the stage. Yep. Um, Mark Chapman, um, who assassinated John Lennon, yep. uh, was a crazed fan. Yep. Um, I mean, is this something that has 
materially changed are uh, 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 one direction and the other one you mentioned are they, are they that much more sort of alluring that people will go the extra mile or is this a, not, a sort of function of social media yeah I definitely think it's I do think it's not a new thing at all but I think the ability to communicate obviously is much more advanced now. so obviously when the Beatles used to land in Australia or America or wherever it might be they'd be mobbed but the mob in Australia and the mob in the US and the mob in the UK couldn't really talk to each other and compare notes and frenzy themselves even mm. further whereas now the the collective can speak from all over the world you know and one of the things that they do in the book is that the band is being sort of tracked by the fandom and so people share sightings and people share tips and you know they can work out where they are and i've seen them etc cetera, etc cetera. and that kind of ability to 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 kind of have people feed your obsession even more i think is what makes it appear like it might be a kind of a new thing now i think it's very much just the way it manifests rather than the the people have always idolized celebrities you know when they die and people just start crying which i've kind of never really understood um you know but people get very excited and they'll follow people around and queue up for days to go see that that i think has always been there but there is a worrying development in the way that it, it is reflected in, in behaviour, definitely. You used the word feed there. And mm. though the writing of this is of Heartstream is quite um it's quite straightforward, it's you, you wouldn't mm. pick it up for the writing. No, no. Agreed. Sorry, Tom. But it does bring up he, he no, he does bring up something really interesting in a couple of the first pages where Amy is at this funeral for her mother. She's unfortunately been live streaming and then mm. she goes outside and in front of the church there are all of these fans yep. and she has she's I think turned it off mm-hmm. and they are saying, We need to feel, we need to feel, mm. we need to feel. Yeah. Um they're clearly addicted to the sensation. They want to connect with her. And then there is a moment where she thinks in her head where she hears the word feel, but in fact she interprets it as feed. Right. And yeah. we use that word feed mm. like on Instagram feed yeah. all the time. And it wasn't until I actually read this where I made the kind of more sinister connection. Well, sort of like f- feeding the pigeons, giving them what they need to keep going. Pigeons. Uh, <laughs> It's not, it's not, it's, it, to be honest, to a lot of like sort of celebrity fandom and Instagram people, pigeons is not necessarily the worst <laughs> association. Um, but I think that's, the, the problem is, is that when you have, it's not just social media, if you have an addiction to something, if you have something in your life that is toxic or negative, it's usually there because something else is missing or something has gone wrong or, you know, you need help with something. So it's, if, I think the thing is we need to address in many ways how we can you know make people's lives more productive more engaging so that they don't need to do these sort of things and that's obviously an incredibly hard question because you know society's never really found an answer to it and in some ways social media can help with that but Mm -hmm. it, it definitely I think there are elements of it and I think everyone has to take individual responsibility for themselves and the people around them and you know for instance if you have kids and they're on, you know, World of Warcraft or Facebook or Instagram or whatever, eight hours a day, you need to be having a conversation with them about it. Why are they so, why is it so important to them? Why is it something that they need to be of and therefore address it? Because nobody should be on their eight hours a day. They just shouldn't. 
Yeah. I think it's it's easy also to, I mean, you say it's about you, you get into these things when, when other things in your life are, are missing. And I think that's probably true, but it's also easy to slip into th- things like this. It's true. easy to start f- in a fairly light kind of way and then uh, and then you're using it for an extra half an hour every day and then before you know it, um, you've got a problem. It, I completely agree. Sorry, I was sort of giggling there because actually I just had to confess to a couple of my friends recently that I had I there's a TV show that I have always been incredibly horrifically dismissive of lately and I got sucked into it and I'd like to think I was better than that and now it's something I can't turn off and I, I it's it's amazing how even you can think that you don't have a problem with anything but as you say it can be very intoxicating or seductive I do think as well though that it's very easy to kind of be be negative about mm. social media. Yeah. It's harder to be positive about it, even though there are positives about it, and and not just you know social media and how that's presented in the book, but fandoms can also be lovely, healthy things. Mm. And I think Heartstream at the end of the day is just another example of how whatever we create, mm. you know, it, it will always be manipulated Absolutely. by the wrong yeah. people mm. or by people who shouldn't necessarily be using those things. And that's always been the case with books, with Bibles, you know, religious things, with whatever it might be. People have taken them, or speeches, people have taken people's words and twisted them. People have, you know, people will use things for their own gain. So I would have raced this when I, uh, raced through this when I was 14. Um, because it's young adult, I just want to ask you, Jonathan, you've got kids. Mm. So if, you know, they were old enough to read this, would you let them... I wouldn't stop them reading it, but I hope they have better taste. Uh, I mean, so yeah. if they're if they're fourteen or fourteen or so, I mean, we've been talking a little bit about um, dystopian literature, mm. um, and um, I think if you're fourteen plus, which is what uh, the age that's recommended on, on on the cover of the book, uh, then you can read 1984, uh, and you can mm. read uh, Brave New World. And if you're if you're that old and your reading level is decent, then you can read all sorts of things. So. I mean, I, I feel that this book uh, panders to its audience rather than challenging mm. it or or, or, or or leading it. And if you strip away social the social media language um, and you strip away some of the sort of pseudo-risque subplots of teenage pregnancy, uh, for example, then there's very little of substance there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 have to, I have to say, unfortunately, I agree. I mean, we, when I was here a few months ago, we did that movie, the novel Dry, and that was a young adult novel, sort of dystopian, and that I devoured it and I loved it. I recommended it to 10 people. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that with this. Uh, would either of you actually use Heartstream if it existed as no. an app? Mm, no, no, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I, um, I use social media very infrequently I mean, as a kind of um, mm. address book, as we, as we were talking about earlier. And uh, just going back to that, I think part of the problem is that we just don't know how to use social media. It's so new, we don't know how to use it properly. Um, also, you have to shave your head, and I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I love how that's, that's the line. Yeah. <laughs> yes, no, too far. It means cutting off my hair. Not doing it. Uh, so I found out a little bit of, uh, before we wrap this up, um, a bit of information about Tom Pollock. So I hadn't heard of him before this book. Neither had I. Um, so he is also the author of a critically acclaimed book called White Rabbit, Red Wolf. He's written five novels. Um, Heartstream is his second for young adults. And White Rabbit, Red Wolf is the first that he wrote for a younger audience. And it is described as the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. It meets John le Carre about a teen math prodigy with an extreme anxiety disorder who finds himself caught in a web of lies and conspiracies after an assassination attack 
attempt on his mother. So he clearly has a tendency for kind of the big hook that makes mm. you want to pick the book up. Um, and he's also, interestingly enough, an ambassador for Talk Life, which is a peer support network for youth mental health, which I think is important when, mm. we, Good for him. when we talk about this book and whether or not you, you might like to pick it up as well. So when discussing this, we found ourselves talking about film and television quite a bit. Um, and that relationship between book and film is one I thought we could talk about a little bit more for the next few minutes. So some books are completely and utterly unfilmable. True or false? Are we just not creative enough maybe to translate them to the screen? Are there stories that only books can tell? Before we get into the article that has kind of prompted this, what do you both think? Um, I'm, I would speak against the motion. Uh, I think there's no such thing as an unfilmable uh, piece of literature. I think there's only a lack of imagination and money. I have to say I agree. Yeah, I think I think there are some books that shouldn't be made into a film. <laughs> but I think certainly now, especially with the advent of, you know, streaming services like Netflix or whatever, who are able to take, I think one of the biggest problems that they faced is, is either technology or time. So obviously there are a lot of books that too, and often if I've watched a movie that I've read the book of, I, I might come out of it and go, they didn't include this bit, they didn't include this mm. bit, and those were my favourite bits, etc. And so often if you, you feel like the, the story is so, the arc is so epic or whatever it is, you can't tell that in a two-hour or, net, well, now apparently Marvel's three-hour movies are totally acceptable. Um, but in Netflix series that's 10 hours, you can accomplish a lot more than you would have been able to in a feature-length film. So is that when a piece of literature shouldn't be turned into a film? Is it just when it's a two-hour film and you're going to have to cut uh, 75% of the... Again, it depends. I mean, there are some stories that might be huge that obviously would... would mean you really have to tell it all you would need 20 hours but it might be that you take an element of it that makes itself into a beautiful film and you don't need some of it yeah i think i think this is where you where you where the imagination thing comes mm. in so i mean i've been thinking about some of my favorite uh, books and particularly ones that haven't been made into or haven't been successfully made into films and I, and i think if you take something like the catcher in the rye um, that is going to be very, very difficult to make into a film purely because there's such a lot of internal uh, monologue and you're going to need to be creative. But I don't think that you can say it shouldn't be made into a film. It's just that it's not obvious how to do it. Do you think it's possible that also, especially with something like that, that's so iconic and means so much to so many people that I think people are possibly wary of touching on material that they know could potentially be so divisive? That's certainly the case. Um, but I think you, when you make a piece of art, you have to take some risks. And if you're, Indeed, if you're worried yeah. about upsetting people, then don't bother in the first place. I mean, that well, Game of Thrones just upset an awful lot of people with their sort of finale and they were all big fans. I mean, I remember being very upset by the Harry Potter movies. I mean, I really liked them, but there were Why? definite, there were definite several. I, they were absolutely fine movies, but I definitely there were there were certain bits of it that were just so wrong to me, only because I'd pictured it completely differently in my head. I think that there was a. I I, I could spend too long talking about this. So <laughs> yeah, I kind of put that much very that briefly. <laughs> I liked one and two. There was a dip in the middle, and then right. it picked up at the end. Right. In my opinion, right. but th this question, this whole idea of the unfilmable novel, we're talking about it because it's it's popped up in the news again, mm. um, in a couple of different places, mm. um, but mainly because of Netflix's acquisition of the rights to adapt Neil Gaiman's comic book series. The Sandman. Mm -hmm. um, and this has been discussed in an article in The Guardian from the 3rd of July. It's quite interesting. And it basically says this isn't the, f 
the first attempt nope. to adapt the Sandman. And Gaiman once said, I'd rather see no Sandman movie made than a bad Sandman movie. I think every author everywhere yep. feels the same uh, yep. way. Nothing surprising there. I mean, I think this is this any backlash against this being made into a movie is just the sand. Uh, it's just the, sorry, it's just the fans of the Sandman being worried about um, their illusions being shattered. Mm. I mean, I can see no obvious reason with the um, CGI technology we have and the budgets why this shouldn't be made into a film. Well, CGI Indeed. and budget is something that comes into the mm. article as well. I think money is something that you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. briefly as well. So when we talk about unfilmable, what does that even mean is something that the article asks. So films that are stuck in development with no real hope of making it to the screen, that happens quite a lot. Apparently there is a paradise lost somewhere in there starring Bradley Cooper. Um, <laughs> Cormac McCarthy's Blood, Merid- Blood Meridian is also stuck as well. Uh, there are films where we wish they hadn't bothered. Um, there will be quite a few that spring to mind. Stephen King's The Dark Tower is an example that she uses. Um, incidentally, we have had a listener text into say horror fiction is something that they don't feel works as well on screen she says there is nothing i've ever seen on screen that is as dark as my own imagination and i think there are plenty of examples particularly of stephen king's more horror focused novels that don't work as well on screen i think it kind of changed that yeah and there's also been some stephen king i mean the shining was a great movie but Mm. interestingly he didn't like that did he well that was really really reworked uh, i mean that was that was a huge departure a, yeah, from from the book, the book. Yeah. Uh, and i think that's the only way to do it that's the only way you're going to satisfy people who want a new piece of art and not just a poor facsimile of the original mm. Um, and but I'm surprised about horror as well, because obviously in, in, in movies and things, you can use music and other effects to really kind of build levels of suspense that atmosphere potentially. I mean, I think obviously if you've got a vivid uh, uh, imagination, then there are certain books that you are, are always just going to be much, much better. And I've, there are plenty of films of novels that I've hated and I've been like the books so much better. Mm. Um, but that's a personal, not necessarily that they're completely dreadful, but... You know, if you've got a great imagination, but for some people, the, the the crux or the support of a visual representation allows them to engage with the story more and you reach more people. So some people will choose to read and some people will choose to watch. And why not do everything that we can to, to reach people, especially when you're telling really important and amazing stories that, you know, you want to share with people? I think you just have to you just have to take a punt. You have to you have to do it differently. You have mm. to make it a piece of art in itself and not just a, a copy of the original. I mean, mm. if you look at, I don't know, Shakespeare is very, very, very difficult to put into film convincingly. Mm. And if you look at... Lots of hits and misses. Lots of hits and misses, mm. more misses than hits. And, and if you look some of the, at some of the more successful attempts over the last few decades, they have been the ones where they've departed the most from the original or they've taken a bit of a risk. So Baz Luhrmann's 1996, uh, Romeo and Juliet, um, even Clueless from the same year, which is based on uh, uh, Jane Austen's Emma, um, told 200 years later. Uh, I mean, it's... I think it's one of the best adaptations. Brilliant movie. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, take a risk. And and by unfilmable, we... Unfilmable, we sometimes mean unaffordable. So again, it it comes back to budget and how far Absolutely. what you what a director pictures in his mind can actually be. Well, that's achieved. one of the things we were talking about before. Just before, I was surprised that she didn't reference Good Omens more because this Good Omens has just launched. Um, I think it's, I want to say Amazon Prime. It's Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime, um, and. I read a massive article about it uh, um, previously. Uh, they've obviously been trying to make it for so long. Mm. And one of the things that the director talked about was that the ability to turn it into a series, to have bigger budgets, and also technology to be able to bring 
the bring so much of the aspects of the story to life is something that they couldn't have done 20 years ago and you know and you know what Terry Pratchett kind of wanted out of it and was very insistent that it not be done unless it was done you know per- mm. perfectly and I've so, I've so so far I gather it is being well received but not by everyone <laughs> Uh, Jonathan's wincing there. Uh, just one last thing before we wrap this up. Um, uncommercial is something else that was mentioned, uh, which is why we haven't had an adaptation right. of 100 Years of Solitude until mm. now. Um, but that is now changed. It's being adapted as a Spanish language serial on Netflix. So a big part of this conversation is how television is actually changing Absolutely. And, 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 and widening yep. um, the opportunities for stories like this to be told. Well, yeah. I think commercialisation is so different now because we're seeing so much diversity and choice in terms of language, in terms of kind of the, the, the you know, people who are starring in it, people who are directing it, people who are doing it. It's much more representative of society as a whole now. So it's no longer going like, well, we can't sell a rom-com unless it's a white guy at the, you know, who's, who's leading it. It's very much about having whoever fits with it. And, you know, so we are getting to see so many more stories than we were before. We are unfortunately going to have to leave it there, though I feel like we could talk about this <laughs> for ages. Thank you so much, Fiona de Vivier, for joining us in the studio to talk about Heartstream and also unfilmable novels. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.